I gave you a warning just a minute ago. I'm going to give you an opportunity to share with one another some of the most helpful promises that God has made to us, the ones that have been most helpful to you. Somebody has to go first. From Romans 8. Absolutely. Just that assurance when it seems like life is coming apart. It's always great to know that all things work for the good of those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. Amen. Leo. Uh, Leo, uh, Leo speaks here. <laughs> uh, yesterday we had a perfect example that God, in every situation, we were coming back from Colorado and went from the terminal to the gate on the tram. And when I went off the tram, uh, tram that Jimmy's computer bag was still on the tram. Oh, boy. And so uh, a lot of panic on Jimmy's part. <laughs> Oh, man. Amen. Lo, I am always with you, right? Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Someone else? Yes, please. Jackie. Amen. That promise of hope, isn't it incredible? That gift that God's given us. Someone else? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. What a great promise. And he will make straight your path. Amen. What a great promise. Yes, please. Judy. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a big one, isn't it? All right. One or two more. Mr. Odess. Amen. I will come to you. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah. That the word of the Lord will not return unto him void. Some great promises, huh? You think it's surprising that some of the other types of promises that God's made to us, we don't latch on to so much? Let me give you an example. John 16, verse 33. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. How many of you find that really helpful? <laughs> Let me just read a few things to you out of Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus said. These are like predictions, but they're also promises. He says, look, I'm sending you out like sheaves among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as, the, of the, as doves. Because people are going to hand you over to the Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. He be, says, beware of them. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. And he goes on later. He's in verse 21. He says, brothers... Well, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will even rise up against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. When they persecute you in one town, escape to another. For I assure you, you will not have covered the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
See, a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It's enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul or Satan, how much more the members of his household? Now, one of the promises that God shares with us, it may be a promise is not the way we'd like to describe it, is that life in the world for a child of God isn't always going to be fun, right? My, this past weekend, just actually just yesterday, there was a Davidson family reunion out in Missouri. All, about 100 members of my father's family got together. Uh, I'd been away and up this, this year. I just didn't feel like I could get out there and go. But all my siblings went with their spouses and children. And so there was loads of cousins and the remaining aunts and uncles and all this kind of stuff were gathered together. And, and, and you know just the old family stories are going to start going around, right? And, and my father and my uncle Willard can get going on telling how hard, how hard life was as they were growing up in the 1930s in rural Missouri, you know? And, you know, the idea, they, they had to get, you know, they, they used to draw straws as to who got to, had to go to bed first so they could go up and warm up the sheets before the rest of them climbed in because they had no heat in the upstairs level beyond the stove, you know, or the, the, the challenge of getting up before school and milking the cow and feeding the hen, milking the cows and feeding the hens and all that kind of stuff and before they went out to school. But the one I love the best is, is that it was uphill to school both ways. You, 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 ever, you ever hear those from your parents, you know? It's, those days, it was uphill both ways to school. It was just really hard. You know, we were lucky to get a piece of fruit for Christmas. You know, that kind of idea, you know. You guys got any of those in your background? Those are kinds of ones. But, you know, and it's just symptomatic of the fact that life is hard at times. Sometimes it's just circumstances. Sometimes it's broader than that. We're engaged in what you might have a sense of spiritual warfare going on, which is really what Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 10. But yesterday I was, I was sitting out in my back lawn. I could feel it in one of our lounge chairs kind of things. And I could feel a nap coming on. And I, w- I was reading our passage from today from Acts chapter 21 for like the 15th time. And, and I'm sitting there and, and, I, and I'm looking up at the sky and there are gliders and then there are big jets in the sky. You know, I don't live too far from the Sterling Airport, and it's one of the bigger glider centers around. And there's these two or three gliders that are just up there. And and they're flying, and they're just, it's just effortless, right? They're just quiet, it seems peaceful, and, you know, and it's just at ease. And amazing enough, sometimes they can cut, catch up currents, and they can go as far away from Sterling as to Mount Washington and back. They've had guys who have stayed in the air for over 10 hours, you know, without coming down. I mean, it's amazing. You think you get up there, and it's just a straight pathwards downwards, and you hope the airport is there when you land, right? You know, but it's not, they can, they can really just go and go. And then there are these jets, and they're just leaving these streams. I, I guess it's like steam that's coming out of the, the jets, but it can't be steam. But they're leaving these streaks across the sky. Even as high as they are, they're just making this roar, this incredible roar. They're flying, but it's taking a lot more effort, right? I mean, they just are working at it really hard to stay airborne. And, and I got thinking about our passage today, and the person that we've been studying deeply in recent weeks, the Apostle Paul. And, and here's a guy whose life was hard. Life's hard, right? It takes a lot of effort to get airborne. But when you get airborne, some people can make it look like they're gliding. And it seems like the rest of us are like jets. We've got to just expend a lot of energy to kind of keep moving, right? To stay, af- to stay afloat. 
to stay aloft. The Apostle Paul is one of those guys who just seemed to be able to glide, didn't he? I mean, life's hard for him. When Jesus called him over in Acts chapter 9, he, he told Ananias, says, you know, this is a, my chosen instrument. I'm going to use him with the Gentiles, and I'm going to show him much, how much he has to suffer for me. And, and Paul's been living that out day by day. He, he has been stoned. He has been beaten. He has been the focus of riots. He's been imprisoned. He's been the, they've had assassination attempts against him. They've had everything against the Apostle Paul. And here he is making his way up to Jerusalem. And it's like he's gliding instead of expending all this effort. How is it that you and I can glide through life rather than having to expend so much energy to get aloft? How is it that you and I can reverse the uh, the tilt of the topography that we have to climb from being uphill to downhill, at least in the way that it feels to us. And, and I think there's some great insights for us in our passage today in Acts chapter 21. I'd love for you to t- take your Bibles and turn with me to the 21st chapter of the book of Acts. You use one of our pew Bibles that's up underneath the chairs in front of you. Our text today starts on page 947. For those of you who are just kind of catching in with us, we've been working through the book of Acts since last fall. We'll be completing it this summer and starting something new in, in, in the fall. So we are well into <clears throat> the book of Acts at this point in time. The church at this point in time, Jesus is, was crucified and was resurrection and ascended to heaven at least 25 years earlier. Okay, so we, we've covered a lot of territory. Church now has spread to all the way to Rome. It's been in Corinth and Athens and Philippi. It's, you know, it's in pl- Ephesus. It's in, in many places. Paul has, is returning to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. He's carrying an offering from the churches of, of Asia and from, and from Europe and from, you know, from Macedonia in that area. And he's traveling back to Jerusalem with it. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 1. Let me do what I've done in the past. Let me read through the entire text for us, because I think there's great value in just reading the Word and getting the story. And then kind of review some things that are in it about what God has said to us, and then try to draw some conclusions for you and I on how we can live when life seems to always be uphill. So it's beginning of... Chapter 21, verse 1, says, And we tore ourselves away from them and set sail. And we came by a direct route to Kaz, the next day to Rhodes, and from there over to Patara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. So basically what they were, they were on smaller ships that had to put into port every single night. But when they get to Phoenicia, they're able to get onto a larger ship that's able to kind of make the journey around the southern side of the, of the book of the island of Cyprus, as we're going to see here. And they eventually come to Palestine. It says, and after we sighted Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed on to Syria and arrived at Tyre because a ship was to unload its cargo there. So we found some disciples and stayed there seven days. Then they said to Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Hmm. Come back to that one. They said to Paul, through the Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. So they've landed on the northern portion of the coast of Syria, which is the Roman province of Syria where Jerusalem is located. When our days there were over, we, can, we, we left to continue our journey, while all of them 
with their wives and children, escorted us out of the city, and kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said goodbye to one another. Then we boarded the ship, and they returned home. Again, you see just the tremendous affection there is between Paul and the churches and his connection. And they, the whole mob just travels out with him, and they kneel down on the beach, and they're praying, and, and, um, and they're praying for him, and then he departs. And when we completed our voyage from Tyree, we reached Ptolemaeus, which we greeted, <coughs> excuse me, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them one day. The next day we left and we came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philippi, sorry, Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. So they're making their way south down the coast. When they get to Caesarea, they're now 64 miles from Jerusalem, which is inland from them. And they stay in the home. This is the Roman provincial capital of Syria. And they stay in the home of Philip, who is one of the seven that was elected back in Acts chapter 6. And this man has four daughters. Each of them is unmarried. And they have the gift of prophecy. And while we were staying there many days, a prophet named Agabus, and we've seen him earlier in the book of Acts, came down from Judea. And he came to us and he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet, and, they, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the, this belt and deliver him into Gentile hands. And when we heard this, both we and the local people begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So here's what happens. They, all the way along, I mean, it's from the moment Paul left Corinth, literally all the stops that he's had, and he's had over a half dozen of those, all the way along... Every time they touch base with believers, people are saying to him, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Now they're at their final stop before they make the 64-mile journey overland up to Jerusalem. And this prophet by the name of Agabus, who predicted a famine earlier in the book of Acts, comes in and he, and he pulls an Old Testament dramatic prophecy kind of style thing. He, he takes Paul's belt off of him. This is something that would have been wrapped around him twice and tied off. And he, and he uses it, he, and he binds up his own feet, and then he wraps it around his hands as though he's in, in prison, in custody. And he says, this is what's going to happen to Paul when he gets to Jerusalem. The Jews are going to have him bound up or imprisoned and handed over to the Gentiles. On the surface of it, as we read the following chapters, Agabus is a pretty good prophet. He gets that pretty well correct. So they're, they're just begging Paul, don't go, don't go, don't go. And this is how Paul replies in verse 13. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we stopped talking and simply said, the Lord's will be done. Paul knows in his own spirit what he's got to do. The church is just making it harder for him. And, and after a while, he just says, will you guys stop it? You're killing me, you know? And they relent. Verse 15, and after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the di- disciples from Caesarea also went with us, and they brought us to Nason, a Cypriot and an early disciple with whom we were to stay. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us gladly. And the following day, that's a reference to the church, the believing Jews. It says, the, the following day, Paul went in with us to James, 
and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, this would have been James, the half-brother of Jesus, because James, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve apostles, was killed earlier in the book of Acts. And after greeting them, he related one by one what God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul's giving a, he's testifying to what God has done among the Gentiles with this magnificent message of the gospel of grace. And when they heard it, they glorified God and said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So James's reply, if you will, to him is they're thrilled to hear what God's been doing out among the Gentiles. And they say, and God's also been at work here in Jerusalem. You know, Paul went out and he did the headline type of ministry, right? He did the type of ministry that gets the headlines. James and those guys, they stayed in Jerusalem and they just did the ministry that needed to be done, you know? And, and they had tremendous fruit. To me, it's an incredible reminder to all of us that, that ministry matters. Whether you're standing behind the podium or whether you're one of them laboring here in Jerusalem, we don't maybe have dozens and dozens and dozens of churches and thousands and thousands and thousands of believers to point to, but God's been at work here and many thousands in Jerusalem have come to believe. But verse 21, But they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses by telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk in our customs. So what's to be done? So basically what they're saying is, Paul, you are now an obstacle to the gospel. People have come to Jerusalem from out there in the Gentile world, and they'll say, you know, there's this guy out there by the name of Paul, and he's teaching Jews to stop being Jews. It's not just the gospel of grace. He, he, he's teaching, which isn't true, actually. Paul never told a Jewish person that they needed to stop being Jewish. They needed to stop observing the law. He did say they needed to stop depending upon it as the means of their salvation. But he never told them, nor did he himself ever cease to be Jewish in the way that he lived his life out before God. But that rumor had come. So now Paul is the obstacle. He becomes a barrier to the gospel. And so they're asking the question, well, what are we going to do? says, they will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have obligated themselves with a vow. Obviously, these are four Christian believers. Take these men, purify yourselves along, yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they have been told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we've written a letter, that was back in Acts chapter 15, containing our decision. We haven't moved off of that, so that they should just keep themselves from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. Those things haven't changed. So what they basically do is they ask Paul to go through a public action that will affirm to everybody that he still follows the customs of Judaism, even though he's a believer in Christ. And so what they ask him to do is to take on... Um, the, the, the underwriting, if you will, of, of these four men who've taken on what's known as a Nazarite vow. Often individuals, I shouldn't say often, but on occasion individuals who felt like God had blessed them in some very special way, or they, they just experienced a, an overwhelming sense of gratitude, they would take on a special vow, and, and it was a Nazarite vow. And what they would do is they would commit themselves for 30 days to not eat any meat, not to drink any wine, not to cut their hair, and then for the final seven days, from the last best we could tell, they would live 24 hours a day 
in the temple, purifying themselves as a symbol of thanks. And they would also give an extensive offering or or sacrifices. It would involve a one-year-old lamb. It would involve a ram. It would involve, you know, a big, huge basket of unleavened bread and offerings of meat and grains and and drink offerings, etc. It was very costly. And then at the end of it, they would have their heads shaved and along with their offering, their hair would be burned up before God as a thanks offering. So it was a pretty elaborate thing. And they say, you know what? We've got some guys who've been doing this. Join them for the last seven days. Pick up all their expenses of doing this. Pay for the animals they're going to be sacrificed and all that kind of stuff. And also pay to have their head shaved and join them in this. And Paul says, all right, I'll do that. So he's doing that. It's where the story kind of picks up some speed. All right? So then the next day, Paul took the men having purified himself along with them, and he entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering for each of them would be made. So they've completed the kind of the seven days of, of intensive stuff at the end, and they've gone in to offer their final kind of offering. And as the seven days were about to end, the Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple complex. And they stirred up the whole crowd, and they seized him. So these guys who recognized him from Ephesus or some other place he's been, Derby or whatever, they, they see him. They're there for Pentecost, and they, and they stir up the crowd, and they grab Paul. And they say, men of Israel, this is the man. This is the guy who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, against our law, and against this place. What's more, he's also brought Greeks into the temple and has profaned this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple complex. So they're, they're making this assumption that Paul, the travelers who were with Paul, his guests, if you will, had come with him. The temple was set up in those days where there was a court of the Gentiles that kind of went around the whole thing. But there was a place where you stepped into what was known as the court of, of women, which was only allowed Only Jews were allowed in there. And there were signs everywhere built into the walls that said, if you step through these doors and you're not Jewish, you're taking your life in your hands because you will be executed if you're caught. And the Romans actually allowed the Jews to enforce that penalty outside of their own jurisdiction. So the assumption is made here that since Paul has got these guys with him, he's brought them with them into the temple and therefore they profaned it and a huge mob kind of develops. So the whole city was stirred up in verse 30. And the people rushed together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple complex. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were trying to kill him, I'd call that an uphill battle, wouldn't you? I'd call that working hard to stay afloat there. Word went up to the commander of the regiment that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he he immediately ran down to them. And seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The, the Ro- Herod the Great, as he had rebuilt the, the temple, he had built this fortress in one of the corners of the, of the temple, and there was direct access from it into the temple area. And, um, and at high seasons, like um, Passover and here Pentecost, the Romans would have a garrison of over a thousand men living in that fortress. And so this guy is, is the head of that group. He's basically responsible for the peacefulness of the city, and he rushes in there with 200 soldiers. In other words, there's a couple centurions that go with him and all their soldiers, and they grab Paul. So then the commander came up, took him in custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. 
And some of the mob were shouting one thing and another another, and since he wasn't able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered him to be taken into the barracks. And we're going to start, stop there and pick up with this story next week. Life doesn't seem to be getting any easier for Paul, does it? I mean, he's been traveling now for months to get to Jerusalem. Should be a joyous thing. He's bringing a, a, a large offering to provide to the church in Jerusalem to re- alleviate their suffering. But all the way along, what God's saying to him over and over again is, it's going to get harder. It's going to get harder. But Paul seems to be just kind of gliding through it, doesn't he? Instead of looking like he's hiking uphill, it looks like he's coasting downhill. You know? How does he pull that off? How is it that you and I can take the difficulty that we're going to experience in life, whether it comes because we live in the midst of a fallen world that's full of sin, and with that creates difficulty, or whether it's things that we experience directly as a result of our spiritual journey, if you will, God's specific will for us, how is it that you and I can go through life with a sense of peace, with a sense of assurance, with a sense of joy, so it looks like we're gliding instead of, instead of having to roar the engines just to be able to stay afloat? And I've, I've got just several points I want to make for you. And, and the first one, I'm beta testing. In other words, I'm still figuring out what I think about this, but, but I think it's a relevant point for us to at least bring into the conversation. And, and that's the word flexibility. So, sometimes, being able to glide through life is connected with being flexible. Think about the story here with Paul, Right? Doesn't it seem that the request by James for him to take on this Nazarite vow and all that kind of stuff, doesn't it seem somewhat like Paul is compromising what he's been emphasizing for these two decades worth of ministry that he's been doing? The thing that he has been the advocate for, what he is the champion of, that is we are saved by grace, that law has nothing to do with it, all that stuff really isn't meaningful anymore. He's been advocating that, but he gets to Jerusalem and they ask him, we, we need you to do something for us. Because we still, we believe in the message, but you as the messenger are a barrier. And we need you to be flexible. And, and Paul didn't have any problem doing with it. He didn't have any theological problems, so he was just flexible. I, I got to tell you, sometimes some of the greatest hardship that comes into my life is just because I'm stubborn. Am I the only one in the room like that? You know, I mean, the rest of you, I'm sure you're really flexible. You just roll with the punches. And if it's not the bottom line, the not essentials, the stuff that can't be negotiated away, but, it, 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 you know, you, you're, just, you're just easy going. I mean, sometimes we, we, can just, we can get so caught up in our own opinions. We can get caught up in our own pride, all that kind of stuff. We just won't listen, and we're banging our heads against the wall because we're not flexible. I'm not talking about the things that are eternal. I'm not talking about compromising the message. But when we as the messenger become the problem, is that maybe there's a way in which we are living more like jets than we're living like gliders. But here's two points that I don't think we need to beta test. These are rock solid that you can build on. Paul's assurance, Paul's strength, Paul's joy, his, his, his calmness came from the fact that he had tremendous clarity about the will of God for his life. 
He didn't have any doubts what God had asked him to do. And he had no doubts that he was doing what God asked him to do. And because of that, he had tremendous strength. You know, as I mentioned earlier, in Acts chapter 9, when God called him, he said, you know what, you you are going to suffer a lot for my name. Paul knew. And Paul was in the middle of that. And he was in the process here of coming to a place where he was going to get to declare the message before kings, which is also what God had promised him. He, He knew he was absolutely in the smack dab center of the will of God. And with that, he was just able to glide. No matter how hard it was, no matter how challenging, no matter how painful, he was just able to glide. And I got to tell you, that's something that's available to every single one of us. Now, I realize that some of the hardships that come into our lives aren't necessarily spiritual in nature. What I mean by that is we, you know, was it God's will that you get laid off for a long time? Was it God's will that you got really sick or had cancer or whatever? I I don't know if I can answer all those questions. You know, because those are very complex things. But I will tell you, I know that God has given us a resource of a whole lot of promises that we were just talking about, right? And, and, and these, that's God's will for us, to have that sense of assurance, that strength, that promise, the, the, the knowledge of His presence that's with us. And out of that, we, we know that we can be doing, we, we can be processing our experiences in a way that we know is consistent with the will of God. And doing the things that we know we should be doing. It's interesting that as Paul is moving through this whole journey, the church is saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. And Paul's hearing from the Spirit, go, 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 go. You, you see that tension in there? That, and you wonder, well, who's right? Who's wrong? Well, the way I look at it is I, I, I see that, that God is preparing Paul for what comes ahead through the word of the church. And often one of the reasons why the will of God for our lives just kind of starts to come unraveled when we hit hard times is because we're just not prepared. And let me, let me say then that that promise that Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulations, can actually be one of the most precious promises that you have because you're prepared. You're prepared to handle what life brings in the will of God. Secondly, not only did Paul have clarity about the will of God and knew he was in the will of God, but Paul prized faithfulness more than anything else. More than safety, more than longevity, more than comfort, more than anything else, he valued faithfulness. What did he say to the church when they kept hounding him? He says, don't go, don't go. He says, listen, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. The thing that was most important to Paul more than anything else was to say, I want to do what God's told me to do. I want to do what God's told me to do. And I want to do it the way that God's told me to do it. You know, that really can make life a lot easier, can it? Let me give you a frivolous example. How many of you, you know, you, so you say, what am I going to wear today? Right? You're standing in front of your closet. So what am I going to wear today? What if in your closet all you have was black pants and white shirts? How hard would it be to decide, what am I going to wear today? 
if, if we've just decided I'm going to do God's will, God's way, not so hard to make decisions, is it? But when we're trying to jockey all these different priorities in our lives, life gets pretty complicated. And we go from gliding to needing more and more jet engines strapped on to keep us afloat. Does life seem like it's all uphill to you? Are you more of a jet than you are a glider at this point in your journey? Well, you know, the answer to that question is having faith in Christ and living in the center of that faith as we process our everyday lives. What has God told you to do today? Let's pray together. God, let me say, first of all, thank you for not letting my journey look like the Apostle Paul's journey. I'm glad I've never been thrown in prison. Glad I've never been stoned. Glad I'm not anticipating martyrdom with each step that I take and being faithful to you. I'm grateful that that's not my path. And Father, I think all of us who are here this morning feel the same way. But God, we'd love to have what Paul had. And that, that's, a, that's an inner peace, strength. It's, it's a quality of life. A joy that can't be touched by anything that's going on around us. Father, as we take steps of faith today towards you as our Savior and as our Lord through believing in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ as the means of our salvation. Father, as we take steps towards you today and hearing what you're saying that we need to do to be more in the center of your will and to value more strongly in our lives faithfulness to your will. Grant us faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our worship team's going to come and lead us in our final song of celebration. As we sing, I invite our ushers to come forward and to receive our offering. Uh, Let's stand and sing to the Lord this morning as we conclude our service.